Today we talk about intrauterine insemination, also known as artificial insemination. I'm Dr. Mark Amos, and this is Taco About Fertility Tuesday. Artificial insemination. It's one of the oldest forms of fertility treatment. But what is it? Essentially, essentially, it's it similar to taking sperm and injecting it into the female body. Now, when we say artificial insemination, that means introducing sperm into the vagina, to the uterus, even into oviducts. Now, when we say IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination, we are specifically talking about injecting the sperm into the uterus versus ICI, intracervical insemination, is when you're injecting it into the cervix. Now, why would someone want to inject in the cervix versus the uterus? It seems like you would want to get closer to the place it's supposed to be. Well, you would be right. Matter of fact, injecting the sperm into the cervix has about the same chances as having intercourse. However, by injecting it into the uterus, you improve the pregnancy chances. Now, the actual IUI uses a very thin catheter, and then using a syringe, we pull the semen into the syringe through the catheter, and then the speculum is placed vaginally. The cervix is then seen. Sometimes we'll clean it off with a Q-tip, and then we will place the catheter through the external cervix into the internal cervix all the way to the uterine cavity. Now, some doctors may stop before they touch the top of the uterus. Other doctors will go to the point and touch the top of the uterus. Now, there is a benefit of touching the top of the uterus. One, you know you're at the top. But two, you also cause a little bit of cramping. Now, at first you would think, why would that be good? Why would they want to cause my uterus to cramp? But in reality, we know that it does help propagate the sperm so that it's going down the fallopian tubes. Matter of fact, it's even believed one of the reasons for a female orgasm, which usually does have a uterine component, is to push the sperm through the uterus to the fallopian tubes. Now, does this mean you have to have cramping? No. Matter of fact, I've had many patients ask me, should I go home and have intercourse and have an orgasm so I can improve our chances? I don't believe you need to do that. However, I also don't want you to be nervous that your uterus is cramping at the time of an IUI. Now, on the other hand, if we were doing IVF, and we were putting an embryo into your uterus and we touched the top of the uterus, that would absolutely lower your chances of getting pregnant. And that's because an embryo is ready to implant. It's usually a blastocyst and the cells are ready to implant into the uterus. So if I cut, press the top of the uterus, I can cause bleeding, I can cause cramping, and that's going to prevent that embryo from implanting. And if the embryo can't implant, you can't become pregnant. However, with an IUI, you are not even ovulating yet. You may not even ovulate for several hours. So then the embryo is not going to implant 
for another five to six days. So even if we cause cramping, nothing's going to happen because you're not ready to implant. It's not going to continue for five to six more days. Additionally, if you have bleeding, it's concerning. But with an IUI, any bleeding you have is going to be gone before the embryo implants in there. So I would never be nervous if you see a little bleeding. That is quite normal. Now, why do you get a little bit of bleeding? Because you're taking a catheter and pushing it through the outside of the cervix into the uterus. I always tell people God never intended something to go this direction. It's supposed to only come out the other way. So if we're pushing the catheter through the cervix, we can cause bleeding because it was never intended for a catheter to go through your cervix into the uterus. So the procedure is kind of like a pap smear from the perspective that you will need a speculum that will need to get to the cervix. But the difference from a pap smear is we're injecting sperm in and we're going to have you lay there then for the next 10 to 15 minutes after we inject it in. Now, sometimes it's a little bit difficult. And that's because the cervix is very secure with this. It's not always a straight shot. And for that reason, sometimes we have to try to curve the catheter or even use devices to help get that catheter to the uterus. One of the most common questions I get asked when I have difficulty getting the catheter in place is, is there something wrong with me? Is this the reason we're not getting pregnant because a sperm can't get in there? And again, I remind people there's a big difference between sperm, which is liquid, which is very similar to blood. So if you can have a period, sperm can get through. But the catheter was never meant to go through the cervix. So it's not uncommon for someone to not have the ability to have a catheter go through there. And sometimes we have to use certain tools that can cause a little bit more discomfort. Overall, I think most women do just fine. I've had many women ask me if, if it's going to be painful. And I explained to them that few women have any discomfort. Some don't even realize the IUI has been done. So I would tell you, do not be worried about IUIs. They're not painful and they're very simple. So the next question then is, who is this for? Should everyone do artificial inseminations? Why do some people go on the IUIs versus IVF? Essentially, there are going to be three areas that I would recommend doing IUIs for. The first one we're going to talk about is called a hostile environment, and that would be at the cervical region. And a hostile environment would be the situation where potentially the vaginal environment is causing the sperm to die or somehow preventing the sperm from getting in. And so the thought is when people have unexplained infertility, an IUI would help because you're bypassing the cervix. Now, keep in mind, this is somewhat theoretical. I mean, we don't know who has a hostile vagina and who doesn't. So even if your spouse is yelling at you at times or you feel as hostile, it doesn't mean that she's killing your sperm. The good thing is, is that an IUI would allow you to bypass her cervix and that way, bypass the danger. Now, the next issue would be sperm issues. And this is going to be things that could be wrong with the sperm. Now, commonly what people think is, oh, my count. If my count is low, I'm going to need to do IUIs. Actually, that is almost rarely the cause. Um, 
you need to have about 20 million total moving sperm to get pregnant naturally. If you are between the 10 and 20 million sperm range, then that's when artificial insemination would be great. But a lot of times, the actual total modal count of sperm is perfect. But yet people still have a low chance of getting pregnant without IUIs. Now to define total modal count, what that means is if you take all of the sperm that a man ejaculates and then you find out how many are moving, so let's say it's 50%, then it would be the total modal count. So if you have 100 million sperm and 50% are moving, you have 50 million total modal sperm. Now, when it comes to these other parameters, such as the concentration, the motility, the progressive motility, the volume, these are all factors of sperm that can create an issue. So let's start with each one. So we talked about the count, and that's just the number of sperm you make. So that one's pretty easy. Concentration is how much sperm there is per milliliter of volume. Now, at first, it seems, why does that matter? If he has enough sperm, he's a stallion. In reality, the concentration is actually more important because all the sperm is not getting in. And as every woman knows, it does not all go in. Matter of fact, most of it comes back out. So only the sperm touching the cervix is going to get into the uterus. So if your concentration is low, then essentially you have a low sperm count. It doesn't matter what's in the vagina because only the part touching the cervix is going to get in. Now, who's at risk for having low concentrations? It's going to be guys who ejaculate a large volume because all the sperm a guy makes can fit on the tip of a pen. So all the volume comes from ejaculation and that comes from the prostatic fluids and the seminal vesicle fluids. Some men make so much ejaculate volume that they dilute their sample and make the concentration extremely low. So if you feel your partner has a large ejaculate volume, then this could be a problem. Now, keep in mind, the normal ejaculate is about two milliliters, whereas a high volume would be something around five milliliters or greater. Now, on the flip side, you can have too low volume. Now, clearly, your concentration may be great with low volume because now you're really concentrating everything into a small amount. What I'm talking about is if the volume is so low, like one milliliter or less, we find people have a problem getting pregnant. Now, the thought process behind this is that there's such a low amount of volume that the sperm is getting kind of lost in the vaginal folds which is normal. All women have what are called vaginal fornixes. And this is these crevices around the cervix that are like little pockets. So when you have ejaculation, the sperm sits in those pockets and then covers the cervix. But if the volume's too low, it may not be enough to even cover the cervix. So essentially, if you only ejaculate a small drop, there is a good chance you have low volume and that may prevent you from getting pregnant and IUIs would be a great treatment option. Now, when it comes to motility, this is kind of a misnomer. So when you hear the word motility, you think, okay, that's how my sperm moves. And that's kind of true because the ones that are moving are motile. But in reality, when you hear about 
motility, it's not saying how well your sperm move. It's actually telling you how many of them are moving. So when you hear that someone has a 30% motility, you think, okay, 30% the speed of normal sperm. That's okay. He'll get there someday. That's a tough looking sperm. But in reality, it means 70% of your sperm is dead. Now, first you think, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, Some sperm die, I get it. But the problem isn't the dead sperm themselves, it's how the dead sperm interact with a live sperm. If you imagine if you were in a burning building and there was 100 people and 70% of the people said they weren't going to move and you all had to get out of one door, you might have some trouble getting out fast because people are in your way. We call this a colligative property. It's not a property of the actual specimen, but of just count. Now, there's nothing in the ejaculate that you would notice to be able to tell if you had good or bad motility. This is something that has to come from a semen analysis. So if motility tells us how many are alive or dead, what tells us how they're moving? Well, we call this progressive motility. Some people may call it grade. And essentially, it has four numbers. One, two, three, and four. Where four is the best swimmers. I tell people this is like Michael Phelps. These are gold Olympians. These are, you know, some of the best swimmers in the world. Three is going to be your typical college swimmers, great high school swimmers. They're good, but they're not Olympic. And that's okay. You just need to be good. Two is going to be your everyday swimmer. That's me. I'm not going to drown, but I'm not going to do a bunch of laps. I like to sit on the lazy river. You want to be above two. You don't want to be me. You want to be a swimmer who can definitely swim a lot of laps and swim for a long time. If you're at a two or 2.5, that can absolutely affect your chances of getting pregnant. Now, one, one's real bad. One's basically saying they're just twitching or just running in circles. So you don't want to be a one at all. And if you are a one, you're probably moving on the IVF. If you're a two, You can still do IUIs, but the question is, how much sperm do you have? If you have a lower count, the problem is, is that when they filter the sperm, you're going to lose most of your sperm. And if you don't have a certain amount of sperm at the end, your chances of getting pregnant are low. Now, if you have a lot of sperm, let's say 100 million, and you have poor progressive motility, by the time they get done weeding everything out, you'll still have at least 5 to 10 million sperm, and the motility will be good at that time. Again, these things can only be found with a semen analysis, which is where your partner would give sperm and then it would be evaluated under a microscope. And these parameters will then be figured out and you'll get the results. And then using this information, you can realize whether an IUI would be good for you or not. Now, the third area would be if you have no sperm. Now, at first you think, well, of course. But what I mean is your partner can have zero sperm. There could be situations where you need to use donor sperm. And it's not only for couples who don't have a partner. So obviously, if you are without a partner, you can use donor sperm. But sometimes one of the partners has a heritable disease that could cause problems with their kids. And so instead of having a kid, they say, let's just use donor sperm. There could be other situations that require uh, using donor sperm. I've even had patients use donor sperm for financial reasons because they didn't want to pay for IVF. So they decided to use 
donor sperm with IUIs. And that's really one of the main reasons why people do intrauterine inseminations, IUIs, because they're affordable and they're very easy. Most people, when they do an IUI, don't get very stressed out because it's a pretty simple procedure. It's not painful. It's easy. The medications are usually very easy. Whereas IVF is extremely stressful. It's extremely expensive. And it takes months before you can even do it sometimes. Whereas IUI's first period you get, you can start. So the question then comes, how successful are they? Well, it kind of depends on what you do. The intrauterine insemination is just bypassing the cervix. So clearly, when you have more sperm issues, it's probably going to help you more because you're actually treating something versus if you're doing IUIs and you have unexplained infertility, you don't really know what you're treating. On the same token, if your tubes are blocked or you had no sperm, it wouldn't make sense to do IUIs at all. So let's just start with the most common statistics. If you did what we call a natural IUI, so this would be the situation where you ovulate on your own. You call your doctor up and say, I, I've seen a positive ovulation predictor kit. And 24 hours later, you'll come in and do an IUI. The chances of that working are approximately 8 to 12%. Now, that seems weird that it would be 8 to 12% because if you're under 35 and trying on your own, your chances are at least 15%. But keep in mind, most people who are doing IUIs have not got pregnant. So at this point, their chances are usually less than 4% per month. So an 8 to 12% is going to increase your chances. Now, if someone, let's say, didn't have a partner, a single woman, or a lesbian couple, then in that situation, their chances are probably going to be what their normal chances are of getting pregnant, 15 to 20% if they're under 35. As they get older, that drops. But when people are doing IUIs with infertility, that changes. And now your percentage is only going to be 8 to 12%. In general, IUIs increase your chances by about 40%. Now that's an increase, not a 40% increase. So that means if your chances are 20%, it's going to now go to 28%. Now the next category of IUIs, usually people use Clomid or Femara. Now if you have PCOS, you probably want to use Femara. But if you're using Clomid or Femara, that will usually boost your chances a little bit more and get close to 12 to 15%. Now, again, the IUI is still doing the same thing. You're just increasing the chances because you're making more eggs now. There's also what are called minstim protocols or injectable therapy. Here, you're even being more aggressive. Now you're making more eggs, sometimes three to four. And in that situation, the chances are closer to 15 to 22% per IUI cycle. Now, again, the IUI chances are still the same, but if you make more eggs and they're more mature, there's a better chance that it's going to work. Now, the next question is, how many of these should you do? Should you do six of them? 10 of them? 12 of them? Well, the answer is actually three. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do more than three, but what happened is a group out in Massachusetts where fertility is covered, pushed everyone to do IUIs because it's cheaper than IVF. And they went back and they looked at this group and said, when were people getting pregnant? Were they getting pregnant on IUI number eight? Because we've seen it before. I've even seen it. But the answer was, 
is that if you took everyone who ever got pregnant with IUIs and you looked back at when they got pregnant, what you would find is that 90% of the people got pregnant in the first three cycles. That means of all the people who got pregnant, there was 100 people that got pregnant, 90 people got pregnant in the first three and only 10% ever after those first three. That means that of that 100, only 10 people got pregnant after that third cycle. So what came from that is it, it let everyone know what we already knew, but now it verified it. That if it doesn't work in the first three cycles, it's probably not worth doing. At that point, you should be thinking about further testing or proceeding with something like IVF. So why doesn't everyone do IUIs? Or what's the downside of doing IUIs? Well, first, it's not for everyone. So clearly, if your tubes are blocked, I wouldn't recommend doing IUIs. If your sperm count's too low, I would not recommend doing IUIs. I would even say if you have unexplained infertility and it's been over three years of trying, I probably wouldn't do IUIs. But I think one of the most frustrating things about IUIs is that no one knows why they don't work. See, when it works, we think, oh, well, we did the right thing. But when it doesn't work, we really can't tell you why it didn't work because we can't see anything. I mean, in reality, all we're doing is taking the sperm and getting closer to the eggs. We're essentially match.com. We're just getting everything closer. We're not making any magic happen. We're just setting everything closer. So when it doesn't work, I don't know, did your tube not pick up the egg? Is it possible that the egg never made it to the sperm and got fertilized? Is it possible the embryo never made it into the uterus? Or that maybe there's a uterine problem? Although it seems pretty simple and you think, yeah, that, that makes sense. It's weird. When you take sperm and inject it into your uterus and you see all those follicles, in your mind you think, yeah, it's going to work. And when it doesn't, it's so concerning because it doesn't make sense why it wouldn't work. And then when you go to your trusted source, your doctor, they don't know either. And that's the trouble with IUIs. You just don't know why they work and why they don't work. And so for some people, that can be extremely frustrating. The second fear for people with IUIs is if it doesn't work, am I going to waste a bunch of money when I could have just put it towards IVF? And the simple answer to that is, yes, that's actually very possible. Matter of fact, I was just talking a minute ago about unexplained infertility. Unexplained infertility is when you don't find the cause for infertility, but you know something's wrong. Now, the first line treatment for unexplained infertility is IUIs. And the thought process here is that it's some cervical issue, we talked about that hostile environment, or maybe there's just some sperm parameter that we don't recognize is wrong. And so we always start with IUIs. But I make the argument, if you've had unexplained infertility for three or more years, I find that few people get pregnant with IUIs. And if you think about it, if it really was a hostile environment, I mean, can we really believe for three to five years that not a single sperm can get by that environment? And the answer in my mind is no, I don't think that's possible. And so I tell people, 
when it comes to IUIs, if it's unexplained infertility, if it's been over three years, it might make more sense to go on to IVF if they're paying everything out of the pocket versus taking the risk of doing IUIs and spending a lot of money. Now, if they have coverage, absolutely try IUIs. Why would you not? And what's the worst that happened? You wasted three months. That's not a big deal. But if you're paying for everything out of pocket, that's a pretty big expense just to try something. And that's one of the biggest dilemmas of IUIs. See, when you do an IUI cycle, we usually combine it with a thing called ovulation induction, where we're causing your eggs to make two or three, maybe even four. Now, that's great because it increases your chances, but one of the downsides of that is that you have an increased risk of what we call early ovulation, at least 15 to 25% chance of early ovulation. So with IUIs, unlike IVF, we don't control as many things. And so sometimes why IUIs don't work is because we're not using a lot of the same medications and we shouldn't because why would anyone put a lot of money into an IUI? The chances aren't that great. Whereas in IVF, you can use lots of medications to prevent ovulation, to push your eggs harder, and then make more to increase your chances. But with ovulation induction with IUI, you really don't have those tools. Now you can use them, but why would you spend two, $3,000 for such a sh- small chance? Now, before we end, there's a couple things I wanted to go over. One question I get asked a lot is, what about double IUIs? Double IUIs, meaning doing an intrauterine insemination, sometimes 12 hours after trigger, and then again, 36 hours after trigger, or sometimes people do it 24 and 48 hours, it's supposed to help improve chances. Now, there are very conflicting studies on this. Most people show it doesn't benefit. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I don't think it helps. And I'll explain why I think it does help and why I don't think you need to do it. The reason I think it helps is, is that if you ovulate early by putting the sperm there after 12 hours after the trigger, if you did miss it, sperm's there early. Then the second sample's going when you expect you to ovulate, but again, if you ovulate early, you've already covered that. However, if you are not pre-ovulating, it's really not going to benefit you and you're just doing two samples and spending more money. So most clinics do not do double IUIs. I will do them for patients, but I always tell them I don't think it's benefiting them in any way and that they're just doing it to make themselves feel good. The other special circumstance is when using donor sperm. When you are having intercourse and doing IUIs, there's always a chance sperm is there. But when you're using donor sperm, there is no chance for sperm being there until you inject it in. And in this situation, it's very important for your doctor to make sure to not miss ovulation. At my clinic, we actually test for ovulation by either checking hormones or you can do ovulation predictor kits. But it's very important to not miss it because the egg is only good for 24 hours. So if the person is not having relations with a sperm donor, then in that situation, they have no sperm around. And if they ovulate and you don't get pregnant, it's probably because you missed the window. So in this last part, I just want to go over a couple situations of when I would or wouldn't recommend IUIs. We've already talked about you would only do IUIs at least three tries, and then you would want to either do more testing or move on to something else. So specifically, we're talking about situations where someone comes in and has a history. 
So patient one, they come in, unexplained infertility. There's nothing found wrong. They've been trying for about one to two years. I would absolutely recommend IUIs in this situation because now that's the first line treatment and there's a good chance it's going to work. Probably 50% chance those couples are going to get pregnant after three IUIs. The second scenario is someone's been trying for six years. And during the workup, it's found that there is a male factor issue. And it's not major. It's very, very mild. Now, in this situation, I would want to do IUIs, but I would also have to explain to them that that mild treatment may not help them because their sperm problem is not that big of a deal. Now, if the sperm problem was a big enough issue that can cause infertility, then I would absolutely recommend IUIs. But with six years, if there's just a mild problem, like let's say 35% motility, well, normal 40. Can 5% motility really stop you from getting pregnant for six years? I would say no. And so in that situation, it might even be worth going on to something like IVF because it's been six years. But if there is a sperm problem, I don't care how long it's been, that is likely your problem. I tell people all the time with my wife and I, I have a sperm issue. I'm about 50% lower than where you should be in total modal count. And I've never had a pregnancy with my wife. So it shows you that even though 50% still seems like a lot of sperm, you can go 28 years and not get pregnant naturally. Now in this next patient, if I told you her tubes were blocked, we can all say that, yeah, I wouldn't do an IUI. Doesn't make any sense. And it's absolutely true. It would not make sense. But what if one tube is open and the other tube is blocked? Then what should you do? This is actually a difficult situation because clearly one tube is open. So there is a way to get pregnant. But the problem is what caused the other tube to get blocked? See, Most blockages are going to come from something such as an infection. An infection doesn't have to be gonorrhea, chlamydia, it can be other things, but the point is it's from an infection. And most infections would arise through the vagina. That would then get into the uterus, and then then would get to the tubes. So the question is, how would it be possible to just get to one tube, where in reality it may be in the other tube, and although it looks open, it still may have some disease on it. If you think about it, it doesn't make sense. It's not like the bacteria is going up the uterus and says, okay, nobody go to the left today. I only want right tube destruction only. Please, no one to the left. They're not that smart. So in reality, any tube that's blocked should always bring up the question, is there a tubal issue there? Now, if this is someone who's been pregnant in the past with a known blocked tube, or it's only been infertility for a short amount of time, it's not unreasonable to do IUIs. But if you've been trying for three, four years and you find this, and everything else is normal, again, it may make sense to jump straight to IVF financially if you need to, but it's not unreasonable to try IUIs. Just remember, they may not work in this situation. The last case is the patient who comes in with volume issues. So a guy comes in, Great numbers, very low volume. I don't care how many years you've been trying, absolutely start with IUIs. 
The same situation goes for someone who has a low concentration. Doesn't matter how many years, absolutely start with IUIs. In summary, intrauterine insemination is a great form of treatment that can be used in many ways, usually used for sperm issues, but can also be used for cervical issues or if you need to use donor sperm. In general, it increases your chances by 40%, but it depends where your original stance was. If you're under 35 and your chances are 20% per month of getting pregnant, now it goes up to 28% with an IUI. If you're 42 and your chances of getting pregnant every month are 16%, then it's only going to go up to 22.4%. This is one of the reasons we don't recommend intrauterine insemination for women who are 45. Their chances of pregnancy of live birth is only 1% per month. So if you do intrauterine inseminations, you're only increasing that up to 1.4% per month, which doesn't make much sense. That would be like buying two lottery tickets. It's not going to help your chances much. So when women are more mature, we sometimes don't recommend IUIs because they just have a low chance because the starting chances are already so low. Well, I hope this episode was helpful for people who wanted to learn about intrauterine inseminations and might have been afraid of them. I hope it helps you decide what's best for you or if you haven't seen a doctor yet, help prepare you then for your fertility visit. Again, I always appreciate everyone who reviews us. I appreciate all the questions people send me. I appreciate all the ideas people send me for these podcasts. I look forward to talking to you again next week for Taco Bout Fertility Tuesday.